If you have your Bible or turn to page 8 in your order of worship, Psalm 131. This is a Psalm of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would open our eyes again to see wonderful things in Your Word tonight like You do each week. You bring us so many great truths from Your Word. I pray too that You would calm and quiet our souls, that we may rest in You, that we may be renewed by You, that we would find peace in Your presence tonight. And I pray that You use the power of Your Spirit and the power of Your Word to help me preach Your Word faithfully, to be of help to someone in this room. And I pray that You'd use the power of Your Spirit and the power of Your Word to help anyone that would hear this tonight. That they could be still and know that You're not just a good God, but You're also our Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Like the New Testament passage that Betsy read earlier, um, we have a lot to learn from children. Jesus knew this more than anybody, and I am still learning this. In fact, it was something that I never realized until I had a couple of children in the last couple of years. Um, and when I say I had them, of course, I mean my wife had them. Um, I was obviously in the delivery room, but someone was doing a lot more work to me, and that was my wife. And so I have children, but obviously Celeste actually had them. But children have this unique way of really showing how the world really works. Um, they have yet to develop these filters that we kind of put on ourselves, these filters that society tells us to put on so they don't pretend. And so with children, you get a unique glimpse of what is really going on in all of our hearts in, in ways that nothing else can really teach us. For example, over the last couple years, there's nothing I've enjoyed more than getting to rock my two-year-old daughter Lydia to sleep every night. Also, there's nothing harder in this world than rocking my two-year-old daughter to sleep every night. <laughs> because the more tired she would get, the more she would fight it. And so it is not an exaggeration to say by rocking her every night, it was the equivalent of wrestling a full-grown bear. And me and Celeste would argue with each other of who is the one that's going to do it tonight. Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? And in this way, Lydia really is like us and gives us a glimpse into our hearts. There's nothing that people want more in our current day than rest. But rest continues to be the one thing that continues to elude us. No matter what we have or what we tend to do, we can't seem to find the rest, the peace, the contentment that our lives really need. So we seem to go through life with this consistent undertone of joyless urgency, moving from one thing to the next to the next, always busy but never finding rest. So that's the question I want you to ask tonight. How are you going to do it? Out of all the things that you have going on, how are you going to find rest? How are you going to find the peace and contentment that you know your soul desperately needs? The psalmist is going to help us a lot with that tonight. And he's going to tell us that by pointing us to the presence of God, because in his presence there really is rest for our souls tonight. So three things I want you to see from this passage. The problem of rest, the practice of rest, and finally the person of rest. So the problem of rest, why exactly are we so restless? Why, why are we so in turmoil inside almost all the time? It is no secret that when you ask someone how they're doing, their immediate response is going to be busy. It's almost like a re reflex. How are you doing? I'm busy. 
we know we are supposed to be busy, and most of the time we actually are busy. We're not lying, we're just kind of stating our reality. We're busy, and so if someone asks us how we're doing, we're going to say, I'm busy. But what's going to feel a constant need to be busy, and why are we constantly busy? Look at verse 1. David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not too raised high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David is describing the condition of a soul at rest. So the opposite of what he's describing would be a soul that's in turmoil, which will begin to explain our restlessness. Now, if you look at the commentaries and the notes surrounding this verse, everyone has a different word for the problems of this verse. Some call it pride. What David describes in verse 1, that his heart is not lifted up. The opposite would be that his heart is lifted up, which would be pride in the Bible. Some call it pretentiousness, which is what David says next. That his eyes are not lifted up, so the opposite would be that your eyes have to look down on others, which is pretentious. Some call it arrogance. Some call it haughtiness. But what all these people are trying to say is essentially the same thing. What leads to a restless life is an over-obsession with yourself. Notice, David does not say in verse 1 that the reason he has rest is because he has his to-do list done. That that big project at work is finished, that the house is clean, that the chores are done. He doesn't say that he has his future completely figured out, that his plan has been mapped out and he knows where he is going, he knows how to get there. He doesn't say that now that the kids are out of school, I have this perfect summer schedule for the kids. So even though they're going to be going crazy, I have this schedule to keep them on base for the summer. He doesn't even say that the weekend's coming up, so maybe I'll find rest this weekend. Or he doesn't say that i got that future vacation coming up later in the summer, and so when I get to that vacation, maybe then I'll find peace for my soul. See, in verse 1 shows us that David does not believe the lie that we often tell ourselves, that a change in circumstance will give us the rest we so desperately need. No, he knows that a less busy life will not lead to a less busy heart. As many of you all have probably discovered time and time again, a less busy life does not equal a less busy heart. The truth is that most of our busyness, our restlessness, our constant running around is tied to our need for self-importance. We have forgotten that we are humans and not God. We have forgotten that we are creation, not creator, and therefore we're dependent. See, me and you, we have limits. We just don't like them. So we ignore who we truly are, we do the opposite of what David is describing in verse 1, in that we puff up our hearts, we lift up our eyes, and we constantly occupy ourselves with things that are too great and too marvelous for us. The Bible calls this obsession with self actually the root of all sins, and therefore the root of all our problems, including our restlessness. In fact, it was the very first sin that started all of our problems back in the Garden of Eden. So don't be mistaken, it wasn't the fruit itself that got Adam and Eve in trouble. God isn't that petty. It was Adam and Eve's desire for forbidden fruit. It was their desire to assert themselves instead of submit to God. It was their desire to follow the lie of Satan, that they would be like God instead of depend on Him. Their hearts wanted to be like God, so they were lifted up. Their eyes, their eyes desired the fruit, and then they occupied themselves with things too great, and in doing that, they destroyed everything. See, when you see yourself as the most important thing in this world, life gets pretty hectic pretty quick. You end up having to prove your importance through holding on to everything and holding everything else together. Unfortunately, if someone wrote the biography of my life, I'm afraid the title would be Luke Rakestraw, a man who took himself way too seriously. In fact, this pattern of self-importance and overextending myself 
has earned me a really unfortunate nickname that actually came from someone in this congregation and now has trickled down to my ministry with college students, which is really unfortunate once you hear it. That nickname is Luke Flakestraw. See, my last name is Luke Rakestraw, so it's a play on the last name, obviously. How does someone like me, who cares so much about my self-importance and dependability and commitment and all these things, get a name like Flakestraw? That's a really good question. I don't think anyone would say I'm necessarily a flaky person. I hope not. Um, that I'm not committed to my job or my family or that I'm not ambitious um, or things like that. On the contrary, this nickname has actually come from the exact opposite. It has come from a deep desire within me to want to do everything and be everywhere at all times, to be way too self-important, to take myself way too seriously. Because I have that focus on self and I think I can actually do everything and be everywhere, I end up committing to everything. So if someone wants to hang out, I say, yeah, I think I could probably do that. If someone needs a, needs a job done, yeah, I think I can make time for that. But what ends up happening most of the time is I have to back out the last minute when I realize there's no way that fits into my schedule. So I'll say yes on the front end, but when that time comes, I end up backing out, a.k.a. flaking, hence the nickname. So by trying to do everything, because I believe my own importance way too much, I actually end up doing nothing. And if I were to guess, there's probably some of that in you too. We have all bought into this lie of self-importance, of trying to be God in our own lives and control everything else around us. One of my seminary professors called this the do-have-be syndrome. Here's how it goes. Our world tells us that if you just do enough, then you'll have enough, then you'll eventually be enough. And we end up doing that over and over again throughout our lives. We try to do more things, to have more things, to be enough things for this world, for ourselves, and even for God. So people end up spending their whole lives running around trying to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, desired enough, and even good enough. But this idea, this do-have-be, this constant restlessness always leaves us wanting because no matter how much you do or how much you have, you never can quite get to enough. You know it, and so do I. Because there's always more to do, there's always more to have, and so you're left with this inner restlessness that, that goes on all the time. So if that's the problem of restlessness, if the problem of restlessness is actually ourselves, not our circumstances, what are we to do? Because you can't just get rid of yourself. So we've seen the problem of rest, now let's look at the practice. And when I say practice, I really mean practice. Look at verse 2. David says... But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Now the but there at the beginning of that verse doesn't really do justice to what David is actually saying. The literal wording is, I swear that. Or I swear that I'm going to calm and quiet my soul. David is making a vow in his heart. He is committing that he is going to put his heart in a place of peace and contentment. And if you don't know much about David, you can read more about him in the Old Testament, but he had an absolutely crazy life. His sins that he committed, his sufferings of things that have happened to him, his circumstances were an absolute recipe for restlessness. So if anybody should be restless, it should be David. But he wants to commit. He wants to vow to bring his heart to rest. And if he can do it, that means there might be hope for us. So a content heart is not necessarily this apathetic mindset that has no ambition to it. It's not this let go, let God mentality to just relax more and take more time off. No, it's, it's a practice. 
and it takes great practice to learn how to rest. That's why the preacher Charles Spurgeon said that even though this psalm is actually the second shortest in the entire Bible, it will take your entire life to figure out how to live it out. So what does this practice look like? David gives us the brilliant illustration in the form of a mother and a child in verse 2. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now if you're unfamiliar with the word wean, or don't know exactly what that even means, uh, weaning is the awful, awful, awful process of helping transition a baby from being fed breast milk or milk to being fed more substantial food. So you're having to wean the baby off milk from the mother to, to eating more substantial milk because the baby, as it grows, needs more substantial nutrients in order to get stronger and bigger. For example, we not only have a two-year-old in our house right now, we also have a two-week-old in our house right now, Joshua. He is uh, not weaned, of course, because he's two weeks old. So here's how this works with Joshua. When he gets hungry, all he can think about is milk. And because all he can think about is milk, he wants everyone else around him thinking about milk. Uh, he's, he really is a cute kid, but in this moment, he's a monster. Uh, he gets so mad, uh, he roots around constantly looking for food and will cry nonstop until he gets it from us. Um, and he could care, this is the hardest part as a parent. He could care less uh, who the milk is coming from as long as he gets the milk. I'm not kidding. I seriously think that if a stranger in a white van came to our house and had access to milk, my child would get in that van with them. Do you see what David is trying to say here? That child before being weaned only cares about the milk and is restless until he gets it. A weaned child like Lydia, who is now older and two, is content to just be with her mother, whether they get the milk or not. Wants the milk, not the mother. A weaned child wants the mother more than the milk. To put it another way, Pastor Tim Keller says that the problem with most Christians that they only see God as useful, not beautiful. That the problem with most Christians is that they only see God as something that's useful for them, not a person that's beautiful in and of himself. God is just useful to try to get what you really want, to achieve your dreams, to realize your longings, to make yourself look or feel more important. God becomes just a means to your own end, which fuels your discontentment. The practice of rest is like weaning in that it's realizing God is no longer a means to your end, but he is actually your end. Rest will not come from doing enough, having enough, or even being enough, but through realizing God alone is enough. His presence is what ultimately will bring you peace, the peace that you're searching for. So the secret to rest is actually not in a practice, but in a practice with a person. The winning of a child only happens if the milk they desperately want is replaced with something greater. So who is that person? Finally, let's look at the person of rest. You see it in verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This simple sentence from David conveys all that we long for and need for for rest. First, don't skip over the fact that you are called by name in this passage. David starts by saying, O Israel, which is the name for God's people in the Old Testament. Although we don't go by Israel today, God still calls his people by name. And in the New Testament, he calls them his beloved. He calls them mine. One of the best ways to stop the busyness in your heart is to realize you don't have to make a name for yourself anymore. You already have a name, and that name is given to you by God. As one author puts it, for Christians, they've already been discovered. 
so they don't have to discover themselves anymore. Second, not only does God call us by name, but he gives us his name to hope in. He didn't just say, O Israel, but he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And if you notice in that text, in verse 3, Lord is capitalized. And when the Bible capitalizes the word Lord, like it does here, it is showing that this is not just a title for God, but his actual name. The same name he revealed to Moses way back in Exodus 3 when he says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. And so this just isn't any God. This is Yahweh, the one true God. And one of the best ways to stop the busyness in your heart is to stop hoping in the wrong gods, to hope in the one true God, Yahweh. And this is hard for us, especially in America, because we have a lot of false gods. For example, take the American God of money. Hope in the American God of money, and you'll never have enough. What about the American God of success? Hope in success, you will somehow always feel like you're a failure, no matter how successful you become. Take the American God of family. Put your hope in your family, and what will end up happening is you'll either crush them under the expectations that you have for them, or they'll eventually crush you when they don't live up to your expectations. The American God of beauty, hope in beauty, you always end up feeling ugly. The American God of relationships, hope in relationships, you always feel lonely. And I can go on and on and on about all the different gods that we put our hope in, but the, the main point is hope in false gods and you always end up hopeless. And so you get the point. Hope in these things, they will never be enough. Hope in the Lord, hope in Yahweh, you will be satisfied. But why? Why does Yahweh lead to satisfaction when all these other things don't? Look at the last word, which I think is the most important word in the whole text. Because this God alone will be here from this time forth, so he will be here now, and he'll be here forever, forevermore. And that forever is big, because God alone can promise you something that nothing else can. The reason nothing in this world can provide you the rest that you so desperately need is because it wasn't meant to. They're all fleeting. They will all fail you, because like sand, they slip right through your hands. But God alone is here now, and He here alone is forever. It's interesting when you read this passage in light of Jesus in the Gospels, because He's a perfect picture of this song. He lives it out perfectly. He seems to be the only person that is always content, perfectly trusting His Father now and forever. And we know it's because He's fully God and fully man. But you see this constantly. He's, at one point in the Gospels, He's in this tiny boat, and they're in a gigantic storm. And the disciples, his friends, are scared to death. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's perfectly trusting and content in his heavenly Father. Another example. He, he is confronted with a chained-up demon-possessed man. Um, that He has caused the town so much turmoil. They have, they have locked him away, away from the city. And there's nothing that anyone can do with him. And Jesus is confronted with this man, and he doesn't even flinch. This man does not bother him at all, even though he is chained up and demon-possessed. Even the devil himself in the desert, when he was tempting Jesus for 40 days, does not get Jesus riled up. However, there is one moment where Jesus does appear to be restless in the Gospels. And let me be clear, when I say restless, I don't mean sinful. Because Jesus is without sin. But no one can deny that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane something is going on with Jesus before his crucifixion. Jesus is in turmoil to the point where the other gospel writers say that he is sorrowful, troubled, greatly distressed, and in agony, even to the point of sweat and blood. 
So although he is without sin, there's something struggling inside of Jesus in the garden. Which begs the question, what is it about this moment? What is it that causes turmoil within Jesus? Now, a superficial reading might say, oh yeah, he's going to the cross, of course. It's a, it's, it's a great physical beating he's about to take. But Jesus faced death all his life, and that didn't really bother him. So what's going on here? Jesus tells us when he pleads with the Father to let this cup pass from me. This cup is an Old Testament reference where the cup symbolizes the wrath of God that is being stored up for sinners. Having to absorb the full wrath of God for the sins of this world had Jesus restless in the garden with his Father. But Jesus did not succumb to temptation. He again lived out this psalm and with his final breath on the cross the next day said, Into your hand I can commit my spirit, perfectly trusting in the Father and his plan. Because you see, Jesus is not just an example for this psalm. He is our Savior. Jesus did not just quiet and calm his soul before the Lord. He gave his soul to God for you. He was restless over the wrath of God, the wrath that you and I deserve, so we wouldn't have to be. So tonight, you can go to the Father, not with restlessness over the wrath that is is due to you, but to rest in Him because Jesus took the wrath for you. So I would say the best application of this psalm is to take your hearts, take your busyness, take your lives, take your struggles straight to the cross and let Jesus deal with them that leads you to the Father. So I mentioned at the beginning that the closest picture of the restlessness we experience today is my children. In fact, they are so restless um, that we have this baby monitor, and it doesn't just have a video so we can see them. It has this bar that shows you when it goes from green to red how restless they are. And it's, it's red a lot, almost, almost 90% of the time. <laughs> and it's even one of those monitors that you can talk through. That they, they say, oh, you can talk to them. It'll calm them down, which never works. And so when our two-year-old, Lydia, is having trouble settling down and resting at night, especially right now, she's, she's got a lot of fears and she's scared of the dark and things like that. She's having a lot of trouble settling down at night. That the monitor is just flashing red, and me and Celeste are trying to calm her down by talking to her through the monitor. And we say, hey, Lydia, it's going it's to be okay. Go to sleep. Mommy and Daddy is downstairs. You're safe. We love you, I promise. But she doesn't understand any of that. Even though we say it over and over and over again to her, It just never really clicks. But you know what always clicks with Lydia? When her mama, Celeste, walks to that door and scoops her up into her arms. In fact, when that happens, you can watch the monitor go from flashing red to green almost instantly. From turmoil to peace, from restlessness to rest, just like that. Jesus Christ is perfectly at rest with His Father for all eternity, but He entered into your world and your story to the point of agony and turmoil so you can have rest with God forever. So now God comes into your life. He comes into your heart. And He alone brings peace to your heart. Like Celeste walking into the room immediately brings peace to Lydia. He really can bring you rest like that. Many have found rest for their souls through Jesus. And I pray tonight that you do too. Let me pray. Father, you are a great, great God. You do so much for us. And you provide us rest, Lord. You say in your word that all that come to you that are weary and heavy laden will find rest. And I pray that we would do that tonight. In your name I pray. Amen.